Good afternoon, brethren. Very glad to be here with you, and uh, good to have such a large crowd. We're getting up now, as you know, nearly every Sabbath we have over 200, and uh, not too long ago we were running just 170 or 80 people, and when we first came back here we just had about 35 or 40 people, I guess, and then we moved uh, our offices here and we got up to 70 or 80, and now we're up to about 230 so we're growing, grateful for that. I want to thank Marcus for the special music. I thank Dr. Scott Winnell, very fine, thoughtful sermonette. And I want to thank all of you, brethren, for the cards. So many of you have been sending cards to my wife, and I want to thank all the brethren, all of you around the world, as this is being filmed, because we had whole sacks full of cards for my wife because of her cancer, and she can't be here now because the cancer has been very, very serious. She's been going through this chemotherapy, which really just almost incapacitates people. As you know, they're under a lot of pain and stress when they're going through that. And so she is hearing this on the tape at home, though, or on the telephone hookup by me, and I hope she's hearing it. And uh, I do appreciate your prayers and your cards to her. And appreciate your prayers and your cards, of course, for Mrs. Oliver, as was announced, and so many others. We do have this whole series of people that are ill at this time. So we do need to cry out to God. I'll comment more on that later. The work overall is growing, as you know. Our impact is growing through the television and through our, our, our Internet is increasing in power. We're very grateful for that. And all the other things that are happening, these campaigns... You know, some of the guys in our executive lunch invented this name, uh, the, uh, I can't even think of it, something, uh, special presentations. And uh, it's such a long name. At my age, I can hardly remember what it is. <laughs> Tomorrow's World Special Presentations. I use the word campaign. So uh, anyway, you'll understand what I'm talking about. I'm partly kidding, but sometimes I really do forget the longer name. But anyway, we're having these campaigns all over, and they are growing in power. And the 103 brand new people we had come in Houston, we had about 232 people altogether, but 103 were, were brand new people that were very enthusiastic. And of course, we're very grateful for the impact the campaigns are having. So we do appreciate your prayers for that as well. Brethren, we are at war. And most of you realize that in a certain sense, but I want to comment on that as we go through the sermon. During World War II, when I was growing up, I heard this at the time, actually, and a little bit later even more. Many historians have commented on it. General Erwin Rommel was regarded by many military historians as perhaps the greatest strategist as a field general in the Second World War. Others thought that General MacArthur was. Uh, Eisenhower was a perhaps greater man in a certain sense that he had the capacity to bring groups together and to be a good leader and coordinator and inspire and bring about a, an activity and get people behind him. But just in pure strategy, MacArthur was brilliant in his island-hopping strategy. He would bypass thousands of Japanese, didn't have to fight them. He'd just starve them out and move on, and that would keep killing so many American troops trying to invade all these islands. 
But Erwin Rommel, many regard as just as great or greater. He didn't have all the firepower that MacArthur had because the Germans were often running out of ammunition. And by the time the Americans got underway, they had far more tanks and planes and everything else. But nevertheless, Rommel was a brilliant, brilliant general. The one who had to fight him, first of all, was old blood and guts Patton. And a lot of you have heard about him. Some of you saw the movie about Patton. And he was certainly very brilliant in his own way. But MacArthur, I mean, Erwin Rommel was regarded as even greater. So Patton studied and studied the tactics of Rommel. You know, the military historians and writers in between wars often are very open about what happened, how this man won this battle. And you do you go around and get them from behind or you do starve them out or you do this or that or something else, use this type of equipment or whatever. He spent many, many hours studying the tactics of Erwin Rommel because he was going to face him in North Africa. And there is an old adage, know your enemy. That's a very important thing. We've all got to do that. Know your enemy. And brethren, most of you know this. Our greatest enemy is Satan the devil. Jesus called him the adversary. He is our ultimate enemy when you get down to it. Human beings sometimes turn on us. Our own human nature is a terrible thing to fight. But the ultimate enemy, of course, is Satan the devil. We have to know him and understand. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and I'm going to give you something here starting, sometimes we end with this, but I'm going to start with this. In Revelation chapter 19, and beginning in verse 19, John writes, just at the time Christ is coming, he said, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse, Christ coming with the armies of heaven and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. That is the ultimate fate of those who fight God. That will be their fate, to be cast into the lake of fire, as even this coming Hitler and the coming great false prophet will find out to their dismay. They will seem so powerful for a while, but they will be cast alive into the lake of fire. Then in chapter 20, it goes and shows how an angel comes down from heaven. This is after Christ's return now, lays hold on Satan the devil and bound him for a thousand years, cast him into a bottomless pit and set a seal on him so that he deceived the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Satan has been deceiving the nations of this world. They're all mixed up. A lot of people in the world don't know which way is up. They're totally confused. Satan has blinded the world. Then he sees thrones of the true servants of God giving, being given their reward to rule with Christ for a thousand years. And then it says in verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. So Satan is then at that point after the millennium, after the glorious 1,000 years of peace and joy, when the desert will bloom like the rose, when the whole world will be ruled by Christ and by his saints, 
based on the Ten Commandments, based on God's laws. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, and there will be no war during that time. They will be blessed in every way. There will be families. There will be family homes and family farms and ownership and love and joy and peace for 1,000 years in a way the world has never known. You think after that time and after all of your efforts and mine, and I hope all of us will be there assisting Jesus Christ, teaching the people God's way of life, you think people would never turn aside, never, ever turn aside again. But notice what happens here. After the thousand years are expired, Satan is released and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to number them together in battle, whose number is the sand of the sea. Hundreds of millions of them. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And Satan then is finally cast into the lake of fire, not just the bottomless pit, and kept there this time. Wow! 1,000 years of God's reign on earth. 1,000 years of peace and joy. And here comes the adversary. You need to think about this, brethren, you brethren around the world hearing this later. Think about it. How quickly can people be turned aside by the adversary, by this great spirit being who gets at you. He will get under your skin. He will get you mad. He will get you discouraged. He will get you turned off. He will confuse you. He will try to find your weakness. He studies his enemy, and we are all his enemy. But we've got to study his weakness. We've got to study what makes him tick. We've got to study his strategy So we know how to overcome Satan. How can you overcome Satan? I'm asking you that this afternoon. How can you personally overcome Satan? You've got to really think about this, brethren, because I'm telling you, we're going to be assaulted by Satan the devil over the next several years in a way we never have been in the whole world. I'm not just making something up here for effect. The whole world is going to be assaulted by Satan the devil. In a way it never has been. Read about it. In Revelation chapter 12, it talks about a coming spirit war when Satan is cast down having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. A spirit war will take place. I'm not going to dwell on that spirit war today. I'm just referring to that. It's in Revelation 12. Read about it. But that's going to happen in the next few years. And then Satan will coming down be coming down with great wrath, more than he ever has before. And the Bible shows us we're going to go through a time of trouble such as has never been since the beginning of creation, known or ever shall be. I think that's hard for us to understand how bad that is. As Mr. Ames said in the announcements, that the Holocaust was a horrible thing. But that was just a small prelude to what is going to happen to our peoples, to this world, to the United States of America, and to some of us who are still alive, if we're still alive, several years from now. Satan is going to get at us, and Satan is going to get at our nation, and Satan is going to come gunning for us in this church. He's going to come gunning for the true church of God, for the true people of God. He hates those who serve God. So we have to understand that. 
And yet in the end, if we follow Satan and the false prophet and the beast, we would be thrown in the lake of fire. If we don't do that and follow God instead, we will live forever and ever and ever in the kingdom of God, the family of God. But there are going to be some obstacles along the way. Our Father in heaven is working with us. You all know this. He created us in his image. He gives us the sunshine and the rain, the food and the clothing, the water, the air we breathe, everything we have. He's our Father But he's fashioning us, he's molding us, he's teaching us lessons for all eternity so he can be sure where we stand when he gives us glorified power in the coming kingdom of God. When we are born of God, he's going to be sure that we have been thoroughly tested. And so he allows Satan the devil to be part of that test. And we've got to follow that. We've got to go through that test to make it into the kingdom of God, so to speak. So we do need to understand, back in 1 John 5, if you turn back a few chapters here, the book, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, of course, is just before the book of Revelation. So in 1st John chapter 5, notice how the beloved apostle John winds up his first letter. He says in verse 18, we know that whoever is begotten, as it ought to be, of God, does not sin. It's present progressive, does not practice sin. But he who has been begotten of God keeps himself. He he keeps himself away from the devil and from sin. He keeps himself and the wicked one. There is a wicked one who's loose today like a roaring lion. As Peter describes him, he keeps himself from the wicked one who does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. These people out in the world are often very nice and they're very kind. They mean well. Human nature is good if it's not influenced by Satan the devil. But when human nature is influenced by Satan the devil, it becomes very, very bad. God didn't create something bad, but it becomes bad to the extent it's influenced by Satan the devil. And he is the God of this world. They are influenced heavily, guided by Satan the devil. So we do need to really understand that it's all around us. And these people even around us that seem to be nice in the world, when Satan comes down and influences the society even more than he is today, a lot of people we thought were nice are suddenly going to be not so nice. And some of us will be shocked as the things unfold. Many will be discouraged. They'll want to give up and quit. You must not do that. You must understand that you are in a war. And Satan, the devil... A fallen spirit being is the chief adversary and that you really understand that and are willing to fight that battle. As with Rommel, each one of us needs to know our enemy. We need to know the tactics of Satan the devil and we must be strong, brethren. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we find Satan introduced for the first time. I'm not going to read all these verses because we've had sermons on Satan before. Most of you have been in the church for a number of years, so I won't read all the verses this time. But remember how the serpent, Satan came in the form of a very pretty, cunning type serpent, apparently. 
And he said to Eve, the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And you can see the phrasing of the question, would God tell you you can't have everything you want? Well, Johnny, I love you. I want you to have everything. No, God does not want us to have everything. Would God do that? And she said, we can eat of the fruit of the trees, but except the one in the middle, you shall not eat of it nor touch it lest you die. And what does Satan do? The first tactic of of Satan the devil is often to deny God's existence today through evolution, or else he will imply that if there is a God, that God's wrong. God is not fair. So he begins to give people the idea that there is no real God or that God is not fair. Why would not God let you have everything? And so in the religions of this world, Satan has his counterfeit Christianity. That's the booklet that's being advertised on the program this week, a counterfeit Christianity. And as you know, brethren, when counterfeiters get into business, they don't try to make a counterfeit $100 bill that's colored with pink and polka dot and looks all ridiculous. They make the counterfeit bill look very, very much like the original. So it's hard to tell the difference. And yet God tells us to study the Bible, to feed on Christ, and to live by every word of God. And you cannot possibly start to begin to commence to read by every word of God unless you study the word of God. Not just read Psalm 23 for inspiration, like we used to do back in our Protestant church, perhaps, or recite the Lord's Prayer just as a dull recitation, but to actually study every book in this Bible so you understand it and begin to have the mind of Christ. Then you can spot the counterfeits as they come along. And Satan is a counterfeit. So he's got a counterfeit in Roman Catholicism that looks good on the surface, but they have had down through the ages hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of men and women writhing in agony, upset because they can't get married, they can't have a home, they can't get a, have a family, and their normal human desire cries out to have a mate. They can't do that. And that's a doctrine of Satan, as God tells us back in First Timothy 4. A doctrine of demons and all kinds of other doctrines that are absolutely wrong or promulgated by this world's Christianity. Much of Victorian Protestantism gave the idea that you can't dance, you can't drink wine, you can't do this, you can't do that, a whole list of can'ts. It makes God look unfair. So Satan comes along and he takes religion and has religion have a bunch of don'ts and wrong things or ridiculous things, or then he also turns religion into a persecuting force, as the Catholics became during the Inquisition, to where they would torture and torture until men and women were screaming, pulled apart by the stake, by the rack, I mean, and being tortured to death. In the name of God. What God? Not the God of the Bible, but the God of this world. So then religion looks bad. That's why many intelligent people and Nobel Prize winners don't believe in really any kind of God. And most of you know that, you older people. If you find the really intelligent people, the politicians, the successful people in business high up, they may go to church. 
They will often go to the Bel Air Presbyterian Church out there, as a lot of leaders do out in, out in Southern California. I won't name the names of some of them that we knew that we used to do business with. Why did they go there? Well, that's where they meet the other important people. That's why they can make more money, you see, if they go to the right church. It has to do with money, society. They don't necessarily believe in the real God, the God of the Bible at all. They don't understand him. They, they think religion is unpractical. It's not real. So Satan begins to give us these ideas. And so Satan then told the woman, if you eat this thing, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Try this thing and it'll make you really happy. Satan comes at us like that, trying to get young people to try sex before they're married, to try drugs. It'll blow your mind. They say, yes, it will. It may give them a temporary thrill, but then their mind is actually damaged for life in some cases. It fries their brain if they take enough of these drugs and other things like that. So the woman saw the food was good. What they have is very attractive. Some of these great big churches of Catholicism and Protestantism have great big beautiful choirs and music and great big ceremonies and pageantry such as we have never experienced, many of us. I remember being in St. Peter's back in uh, Christmas time, uh, 1960. We just went there, sat in the press box to see it. But Pope John the 23rd was carried around on a portable throne right there in St. Peter's. They had all kinds of special decorations because it was Christmas and the crowd was screaming and roaring and shaking and the whole building just shook with adulation. Their God was being carried around by these eight men on this platform and waving to them and blessing them and all this. They were worshiping that man. They had wonderful pageantry, wonderful beauty, wonderful music. So we have to understand how Satan can deceive people. He certainly is. Now, brethren, let's go at this point to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, if you would. And I think most of you, again, who study the Bible are familiar with this. Try to... In Isaiah 14, you find the story of how Satan, the devil, became Satan. He says in verse 12, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Remember, Lucifer means light bringer. So he had been one of the three cherubs around the throne of God. You're cut down to the ground who weakened the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt. Notice that word. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit in the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Here's the attitude of Satan. And brethren, I have found in my experience... 62 years in God's church, that when people get the big head, when they get very, very proud of themselves, that is when Satan will strike. And you look in the Bible, and you found when Nebuchadnezzar, you know, began to brag, and he says, all this great city I have built, and so forth, then God struck him down, and he had him eating grass like an ox for seven years. Throughout the Bible, it gives example after example like this. Satan's vanity went to his head, and, of course, 
he appeals to our vanity and he tries to get at us in that way. Turn now, if you would, to Ezekiel, this time Ezekiel chapter 28, that other verse on this topic that most of you again know about. He's talked, first of all, verses 1 through 10 about the prince of Tyre. The prince of Tyre is described, obviously, as a very powerful man. He was the literal man in charge of this great city-state, the New York of the Middle East at that time. But then in verse 11, suddenly he describes the king of Tyre. Who's the king of Tyre? Even above the prince of Tyre, obviously. He says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone, every beautiful thing was in you from the day you were created. And he says, Yes, you were appointed cherub. I established you. You're on the holy mountain of God. You have been perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. So then over in verse 17. Verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Satan became lifted up, filled with vanity, filled with self. Whenever you and I get filled with self, that's when Satan can grab us. I want my way. If we have that attitude, brethren, Satan can really get at us very, very quickly. And we have to understand that and guard against that in every way that we can. So think about those things and how Satan can get at us. Turn back to Matthew now, if you would, the first of the Gospels. Most of you know this story, but I think we need to understand it perhaps a little better. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus Christ knew that he was going to be tempted of Satan. So what did he do? All of you know the answer. Dr. Scott Winnell described in a very fine sermonette the very thing Jesus did do. He fasted. Paul said when he had this affliction come upon him, when I am weak, then I am strong. Sometimes when you're the physically the weakest, that sometimes turns out to be the strongest part of your life spiritually because it makes you turn to God and trust God and walk with God more closely knowing your physical weakness. So Jesus was led up to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And frankly, as you know, by that time, every cell in his body was just crying out for food in a way that no doubt none of us have ever experienced. Most of us could not fast that long without dying. But Jesus had a perfect, no doubt, background and had a perfect way of life and had extra strength and reserves. Perhaps God even helped him some supernaturally. But he certainly fasted physically. He was in this flesh. He was tempted in all points like as we are. And it must have been a terrible trial to be so very, very weak physically. And yet at the end of that time, face this powerful spirit personality. Coming down in a sense into the flesh and and not the flesh, but maybe appeared that way. I don't know. And kind of coming down on like an opposition lawyer saying, look at this. Why don't you do this? Think about this. Why don't you do this? A powerful personality coming right at him. 
in a way that I don't think you can imagine. We just have the summary right here. He said, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Well, we know that's just a summary. Christ, Satan must have been after him. Are you really the son of God? Go ahead, just eat this bread. Think how easy it is to get some food. Your body's crying out. All you have to do is just turn the stones into bread. Now, he said this. And then implying that Christ was the Son of God, and so he appealed to Christ's vanity. But what did Christ do? Christ answered Satan with Scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That was Christ's answer. Then the devil took him to the holy city on the pinnacle of the temple, up in a very high place where he would be with, in his weakened condition, very dizzy, disoriented how easy it would be to let go and fall down to his death and he said throw yourself down for your own bible says he shall give his angels charge concerning you how easy that would have been for jesus to let go being terribly weak and dizzy and disoriented after fasting 40 days satan the devil brethren as you know can quote scripture satan has ministers and his ministers will quote the Bible. They put a clever twist on the Bible. And all of you have to understand that. That's one reason you need to be as close to Christ as you possibly can, feeding on the Bible, drinking into the Bible, really studying it, not just carelessly reading it, so you will know when Satan's ministers come along and put a little twist on what God says. And so Christ then quoted another scripture that clarified that, and he said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Yes, I could throw myself down, but we are not to put God to a necessary test. And we're certainly not to kill ourselves. Then Satan took him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world and the glory of them. Christ must have seen the beautiful cities that they did have, the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he saw the ancient Roman marching legions and very beautiful women, no doubt, leaping and rejoicing in various activities and festive parades and beautiful costumes. And he saw the glories of the cities and the glories of the, of the marching legions. And he said, all this power I'll give you. Christ never said you couldn't do it because Satan could do it. Satan is the God of this world. Christ didn't contradict that. But you see, Christ was so filled with the Spirit of God, he looked beyond the physical. And that's what we've got to do in the days to come. Brethren, the days are coming in the next several years. I don't know whether it's three years or 13 years or when, but probably just the next several years. Some of it may begin just in the next three to six years. When some of us will be persecuted perhaps beaten up, thrown in jail. We may be harassed, called all kinds of names and so on. And Satan will try to stir things up against us, and he will try to attack us. I've told you the story right after I was baptized about 62 years ago. Just, I don't know whether it was four weeks or ten weeks, but several weeks later, I was walking down South Orange Grove, that great big boulevard in Pasadena, right next to Ambassador College, by myself, just a sort of a mid-afternoon walk between classes or something. And Satan came after me, and I had never experienced anything like that before, never have again. 
But I came to this little park. You should go down to Del Mar. Some of our brethren that lived out there know what I mean. You turn left and there, I think they call it Singer Park. And I was walking over there and across the street on Del, on the north side of Del Mar was a middle-aged man, probably about 40 or 60 or somewhere in there. I don't know. Just a normal looking man. I'd never seen him before. And just tremendous ideas came in my head. Kill this man. Strangle this man. Just pounded in my brain. You say, oh, you've been seeing a lot of bad movies. No, I've not seen any bad movies. Because in the time coming up to my baptism, and we didn't have much money then anyway as students, I don't know if I'd seen any movies. No television. Zero back then. And so on. I hadn't been reading any bad books. It was, I, I sort of halfway realized something like that was happening, but it scared me when this thing kept pounding in my brain. Here's a man I never saw before. I wasn't mad at him. And so I turned around and went back to Orange Grove and kind of halfway walked and halfway trotted and ran right back up the two or three blocks up to the campus. And I came bursting into Mayfair and saw my friend Raymond McNair and Herman Hay, who was the oldest student of all, And I remember talking to at least them in the next hour or so, both of them, either together. And I said, what's going on? And both of them said, well, you were just baptized, Rod, and Satan is coming after you. He's trying to get you right now. I had one of my sons tell me that he had the same experience sometime back. Those things can happen. He was trying to get at me. Now, they didn't tell me what to do. Maybe they did say it was good to fast. I don't remember But I did, I think maybe that was mentioned, but I, they didn't tell me two days. I was shaken. So I had fasted two or three times before, but this time I fasted two days in a row. Now that's not very heroic compared to what some of you may have done and what some things I did later, certainly what Jesus did. But that was heroic for me. I was just a babe in Christ and I fasted with nothing but sunshine and California smog. I started to say fresh air (laughs) for, for two days, had nothing. And cried out to God, please rebuke Satan. He's trying to get at me. And that thing lifted. It never, never, ever came back again that way. You say, well, Satan never came. Well, he tried again. But then from now on, I know what it is. And if those thoughts even start to commence to come in my mind, I rebuke them right away. But anyway, you have to know that Satan, the devil, will try to come after you. And he will try to persecute us. And brethren, right now, we're having a whole wave of horrible sickness, as you know, in the church. And people we're praying for. I start from the north and move toward the south. I don't may remember all of them, maybe every time, but there are others that I don't know about. You think of Mrs. Shumway up north, and she has this tumor moving right toward the stem of her brain. And we need to pray for her. And we need to pray for Mr. Wayne Pyle with his terrible cancer near death at times, it looks like. We need to pray for Mrs. Bonjour, who has cancer, even gone into her bones. We need to pray for Mrs. Stevenson, who has terrible cancer. Mrs. Germano had cancer, and it might be coming back. Something else has come back on her. Mr. Germano, Dr. Germano is not sure what it is. And my wife has cancer. Cancer is 60% of her liver and up into her lungs and into her ribs. So obviously, she has to be healed by God or she won't be here that much longer. She might last two or three years, they say, with chemotherapy and so on. 
but we have to have God's intervention. Further south, we have Mr. Howington. Some of you know him, one of the finest men I've ever known, one of the finest southern gentlemen I've ever known, a kindly, dedicated man, and now had always been helping the church for years until his baptism. Now this last year or so has served so much, he was ordained a deacon. He always is giving and serving and giving and serving. He's come down with cancer and is very serious condition near death. And further south, we have Mrs. Lowe, Mr. Lowe's wife, pastor of our Atlanta congregation. And she has serious cancer that should lead to death. And further south, we have Fitzroy Greenman, our elder down in the Caribbean. And he has a terrible kidney condition, which could be fatal unless God heals him. And there are others I'm probably leaving out. And then people all across the United States and around the world. As I said in my sermon a few weeks ago, I have never in my 62 years known that many people coming down with something like that at one time. If God allows a number of these people to die, I can see a whole wave of discouragement would go through the church. And Satan could use that to really shake people. And yet the truth is the truth is the truth. Whether God allows some of us to die. And I don't think he'll allow all these people to die. I think if we cry out to God, many of them will be healed. But perhaps some of us may die before we get to be 90 years old. Isn't that shocking? (laughs) I put it that way so you'll understand. Brethren, God has nowhere promised that I've got to live to be 90. I'm 81 and a half. He has nowhere promised that I have to be 85. We just experienced, of course, we hear about Mr. Aparty living to be 94 and a half, and that was wonderful. A wonderful gentleman, servant of God. One of my best friends for about 55 years. God gave him a wonderful long life. God gave Mr. Armstrong a wonderful long life, living to be 93 and a half years old. And Mr. Pardon had an extra year even beyond that. But most people do die. Get this. Most of you know it. I'm not using statistics, but from my, my understanding and reading and watching people for 62 years in the church, most people in the Western world do die between age 65 and 85. That's not strange. God says he gives us three score and ten. You know, he gives us 70. And somehow more people live 15 years beyond that than die 15 years before that. So you start just five years before that when people do begin to die in their middle and late 60s, clear on up into their middle 80s. So God will allow some of us to die in our 70s and 80s and some few in their late 60s. And that's not strange. But I want all of us to understand that God can heal, and sometimes he does choose to heal and prolong people's life. And we've seen that again and again. We're very grateful for that. But we must not let Satan put evil thoughts in our mind or just a wave of discouragement, discouragement, and turn us aside from the great God who is even now intervening in human affairs. Here we preach for decades about how important these seagates are, as you know. I'm not talking about just two decades. I'm talking about seven or nine decades from the beginning of Mr. Armstrong's ministry. And I heard him preaching about the Seagates way back in the early 1950s. The Strait of Hormuz is in the the news almost every week now. How important that gate is. 
And just recently, Mr. Hernandez was telling me that in Argentina, the people in Bahia Blanca, that city right nearest the Falkland Islands, why they have signs all over the city, war over the Malvinas, get out British, because the British are in control of it. And if you saw the news, it came out again. Someone gave me a clipping just day before yesterday showing how it's stirred up again down there because Prince William, you know, the heir to the throne, this handsome young prince is being assigned there uh, by the British Air Force. So that stirred up the Argentines to want to get the British out. Well, they have their claim to it, and the British have their claim, but they've been ruling it for over a 100 years, and most people there are British. So I'm not getting into the politics of it. I'm just saying that's what's happened. That Seagate is about to be taken away. Watch. Gibraltar will be taken away probably too. Then how many Seagates will be left? None. Out of eight or ten major Seagates all over the world, you know, Suez is gone. The Panama Canal is gone. The Strait of Malacca is gone. Hormuz is gone. The British used to control that on both sides. The Bab el-Mandeb on the southern entrance to the Red Sea is gone. The Cape around South Africa controlled by the Simonses base, that is gone, and so on. Only two gates left. The great God we serve is bringing these specific things about. He has not gone off. He is in charge. So we must always understand that and never give up on God. God is real. And these things are happening right before our eyes at the end of the age. But we are going to be attacked by Satan right at the end of the age more than we ever have been. And I just want you to understand that. And we've got to learn to believe in God and put our faith and trust in God. So people are disoriented by Satan the devil in many different ways. Christ had to look beyond. Y'all give you all the kingdoms of this world and their power, the glory. Christ said, no, that's peanuts. That is peanuts compared to what I'm going to get if I trust in my Father in heaven. Then I will be in charge of the whole universe, which he has been before and is once again under God the Father. Let's turn to James, the third chapter, if you would, brethren. James chapter 3 and... uh Looking where I am here. James chapter 3 and beginning in verse 13. I'm sorry if my voice is a little husky. I've lost more sleep recently with my wife's condition, and I hope you understand that. But anyway, it's been a trial for me too, and I appreciate your prayers. But you need to pray most of all for her because she's the one in serious trouble. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Here's what God tells us. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness, teachableness, humility. But if you have bitter envy, think about what God is saying here through James. If you have bitter envy, some people are always fighting others and they want this and they're jealous if someone else gets something. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking, confusion and everything will be there. And I have found that through the years back in Worldwide, there were very capable men who came with us for a while. 
But when they got into politics and backstabbing and so on, it was very, very bad. Confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Not trying to hurt others, not trying to just exalt the self, but sincerely saying, God, I'm your servant. I'm your child. I want what you want. Please put me where you want me to be. Help me not to be jealous if someone else gets something. Help me not to be jealous if someone else gets to be a deacon before I do or gets ordained before I do or gets a job I want. Help me to put my faith and trust in you and serve you in the way you want me to serve you. The wisdom from God is first pure, then peaceable, not troublemaking and agitating, gentle, willing to yield, not fighting others all the time, full of mercy. And brethren, you've got to forgive others. Remember, God tells you if you do not forgive others, he will not forgive you. I can't quote your scriptures I can, but I mean, I don't want to take time to turn to all the scriptures saying this, but you've heard that over and over. You've got to forgive others and be merciful and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. God wants us to have peace and to love one another and forgive one another and to learn to get along. He says over in verse or yeah, in verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you get into this world, if you start politicking and having worldly attitudes, if you watch TV for quite some time every day, and you begin to drink in and drink in of and feed on the attitudes of the world, pretty soon you're going to think like the devil does. Because he is the prince of the power of the air. He's in charge of the television programming. He's in charge of the making of many of these television shows overall. His attitude comes through about marriage, about sex, about liquor, about drugs, about obedience to authority, about honoring the father and honoring the mother and the family. He tears it down. He tears it down. He tears down all those things. Sometimes he tears them down with humor. Satan can be very clever about making fun of the father as the head of the family. The father goes stumbling around and makes mistakes. And you've seen shows that just dwell on that theme, trying to make fun of the father or to make fun of the mother or to make fun of the ministry. Even though it's a false minister, the idea is that all ministers are bumbling idiots. And so religion is foolish. Satan is very clever putting that in all these shows or the vast majority If you're a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you not think the scripture says the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, and get this, brethren, this is the key. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. You see, humble yourself before God. Resist the devil. You are in a war and you have got to resist the devil. That is part of your spiritual war. Resist the devil. And God promises if you really resist him, he will flee from you. But sometimes you've got to pray your heart out. Sometimes you may fast one or two days. Say, Father, this thing pounds on me. I'm upset or I'm lusting or I'm hating or I have the spirit of bitterness. I just hate this person, hate this person, hate this person. 
Please get this out of my system. Get this out of my mind. Clean me up and scrub me out where I can serve you and love other human beings and love you. You've got to fight it, and then he will do it for you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinner. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we've got to humble ourselves and really seek God with our whole heart. That's the best defense of all. Lament and mourn and weep. It's not that we have to be sad all the time, but we have to go through trials and tests and sometimes fasting and really humbly crying out to God. It's not all fun, but in the end, the whole thing lifts. You feel better. You sense that God has delivered you. You're very happy then. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. That's his promise. So that's the key, this whole attitude of profound humility. Profound humility where you throw yourself totally on God's mercy. You don't go around feeling proud of yourself. I'm pretty good. I can do what I want to do. Here's what I want to do, and I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it, and nobody's going to get in my way. You see, that attitude is the attitude of the devil. So we've got to get over that. Every one of us, because it's something that will just come on us if we let down. I remember back in Worldwide, we had a number of very capable leaders in the work. I'm not talking about Mr. Armstrong or even Ted in this case. Ted had his particular problem. I'm talking about some others who were very, very, I'm not mentioning any names. I'd like to. I tend to too much, but I must not do this in public. But I do know what I'm talking about. I was there and lived through it. I used to tell my wife, Margie, say, I think this person is going to fall away later. She said, what? He's an evangelist. No, I said, honey, he does this and this and this. And every single time I was right. I can't say I'll always be right about everything, but I spotted it. I could see it was the carnality. It was just reeking and stinking out of certain individuals. And you could see that. And I remember one man that was very cocky. And thought he knew everything and arrogant in the way he acted. And uh, he, I know, was I was told by another evangelist that if this, uh, and this man said, if Mr. Armstrong tells me to dig a ditch down through the earth to China, he'll say, yes, sir, and I'll just start digging that ditch. He was very cocky about it. He says, if Mr. Armstrong then tells me, we'll just cover up this ditch. Yes, sir, I'll just cover it right up. But he would say that in a very jaunty, cocky way. But when he got some discouragement himself, he got bitter, turned against Mr. Armstrong, led a significant portion of the work away from Mr. Armstrong, not because of anything Mr. Armstrong had done, but he had some personal discouragements and gave up on God and left the church, left the church, very capable, very powerful personality. Another man was capable, very smart, had a higher IQ than I do. And I admired him, liked him, thought he was very intelligent, helped even recommend him for promotion and so on. But he got bitter against Mr. Armstrong and Ted and called them corrupt. And he began to fight and, and agitate behind the scenes and so on. And pretty soon when he was put down from the fourth floor 
corner office to a third floor corner office. He still had a nice office, a corner office, a nice office, still had his great big home with a swimming pool, everything else. But he says, I can't take this. And so he joined a rebellion against Mr. Armstrong and left the church and fought Mr. Armstrong. But again, I saw this self-will in him years ahead where he wanted what he wanted and so on. And you, he was proud of himself. And this first man was very proud of himself, the way they carried themselves and acted. One man was very kind and humble, but he was afraid outwardly about people. And he was a leading minister in the field and would do a lot. But I sensed he was always fearful of men. And finally, he left the church because he feared men more than God. And I really, early he didn't leave the visible worldwide church, but he joined the rebellion. He joined the apostasy. But again, I saw things in them where they either went along. Some of them went along with the pocketbook. When the apostasy came, they wanted to keep their job. They wanted to keep their money And they said, we've got to keep our job. We have a family to support. Well, brethren, I had a family to support too. But my wife Cheryl joined me. And I said, honey, if we have to leave the church to start and revive the work of God, we may have to live in a trailer house. I did not mean in a big fancy mobile home. I literally meant a trailer house like my Uncle Paul used to have. And she knew what I meant. And I said, we may have to do that. She said, that's fine. And we had to start all over again. But some of those guys couldn't trust God. They just left and they stayed with the apostasy because the world around them was going that direction. You are going to be tested. And no doubt Satan was trying to get at them, influence their attitude, turn them aside. And he will do everything he can to turn you aside, whether it's money, job, position, vanity of whatever sort. He will get at it. He knows your weakness And you've got to realize the ways he will try to get at you. So, brethren, we must trust in God. We've got to trust that God is alive, that he's in charge of his church, that he will guide our lives. If we do what he says, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Our faith and trust must be in God. That's a powerful thing in God's sight. If we do that and ask God to rebuke the devil, then the devil will leave. So we're going to have a lot of doubts and fears coming upon thousands of our brethren in the years just ahead as more of our elderly people die and some of our younger people may die too of disease epidemics and other things as we get outside persecution as things go wrong in various ways like that. Hopefully we won't turn aside. It won't be because of sin, but mistakes are made and human nature does happen We must not let even that turn aside. I saw people making mistakes in high position, but I had to try to see the big picture. That's why I always encourage you, see the big picture. Is God still there? Yes. Is the gospel still being preached? Yes. You know, is the work still being done? Yes. And so on. See the big picture and have your mind on that so you don't get turned aside or upset by little stuff. 
as the old, this book, I never read the book, but they have a, a sort of a popular book out a few years ago, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. <laughs> so don't sweat the small stuff. Keep your mind on the big picture. Now, brethren, turn back, if you would, to Ephesians, if you would. Ephesians chapter 6 at this time. And notice Paul's instruction about this very battle we're in. And he calls it that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. You put on armor when you're in a battle, and we are, that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the stratagems, all the clever machinations of Satan the devil. He's very clever. He has wiles. He has clever strategies, ways he gets at you, tries to get under your guard. Put on this armor, for we do not wrestle. You see, we're fighting. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. Don't get mad at people. Have your mind on God. Realize you're fighting spirit warfare, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're fighting spiritual hosts of wickedness. Therefore, take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now, around your waist, where your belt is and so on, that is the seat of your hunger, your desire for sex, your desire for food, your desire for liquor. Is it wrong for you to desire to have a mate? No. Is it wrong for you to want to eat? No. Is it wrong for you to have a glass of wine occasionally? No. None of those things are bad. It doesn't say they're bad. It says God guard that with truth. What is truth? John, Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, thy word is truth. The truth tells you you can have sex and should have actually in marriage. That's part of marriage. It's a beautiful thing that God meant for a man and a woman to be together and to have children and build a family. Guide it the right way in truth. Drink a little wine, but not very much. Guide that in truth. Guide all your other desires for food and everything else from your belly according to God's word. Then he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate covers your heart. And normally we think the person's heart is the basic attitude and so forth. Do you have a good heart? Protect it, you see, in a right way. With righteousness. What is righteousness? Psalm 119, verse 172. All thy commandments are righteousness. Be sure your heart is lined up with God's commandments. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The thing that you should be walking in, the way you should be going, moving is doing the work of God in the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith. As I kept mentioning earlier, you've got to put your trust in God before Satan gets right into your mind. Faith in God can block that off with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Satan will throw darts at you. He will throw wrong attitudes in your mind where you resent something that someone said. You'll get your feelings hurt. Maybe they didn't even mean it that way. So-and-so didn't speak to me today. Well, I don't speak to a lot of people as much as I used to. Why? 
Well, because I've got my stroke and I'm on a cane and I've got to be careful that I don't stumble over. So I'll look down and they'll say, well, I'm not very friendly. Well, I'm sorry about that. I can't just look around like I was when I was younger and not be afraid of falling. I think most of you know my example, but I'm just saying others, you know, you don't realize why people are not friendly sometimes. They don't mean anything by it. I remember several times when I was a teenager, some of these old women were kind of going like that. And I thought, oh, they're sticking their nose in their air and they're looking down on me. As I got older and couldn't see, then I saw some old women. I realized they're trying to see. (laughs) They're trying to see. That's why they look like that. They're not trying to stick their nose in the air. They can't see good. So they're trying to get up there or poke their nose over the edge of the steering wheel in their car or other things of that sort. So don't read motives into people. You may not read their motives correctly. Love them, forgive them, help them. Don't get your feelings hurt. And don't get your feelings hurt because you're constantly thinking of self. Don't think of self, self, self. Think I am God's servant. I am bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I am his bond slave. So I don't need to worry if someone else gets to be a deacon before I do, if someone else gets promoted in the work, God can promote you later. And often he will promote you later if you have the right attitude. I've seen that happen. He will test you and try you for a while. Understand that. Be humble. Wait on God and trust in God and do your part. And don't be competitive and be filled with envy. So, as he says, you've got to have the shield of faith. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet protects your head. God's Holy Spirit must be in your mind right up here. The Holy Spirit does not come in your big toe. It comes primarily into your mind. So you have begun to think like Christ thinks. And as you study the Bible, as you pray and meditate and fast, then you begin to think like God thinks. God's Holy Spirit helps you to think like God thinks. Then you can have the helmet of salvation, which is, of course, so important. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only offensive weapon you have is this book. As you study it, as you understand it, like a, a very good swordsman, you can wield it, you can hack, you can parry, you can hack, you can slash, you can use this Bible. Satan quoted scripture, Christ quoted another scripture right back at him, giving him the right understanding of the right, gave the right slant on the scripture. You've got to be able to do that by just drinking in of the Bible and feeding on Christ. Read that scripture back in John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 57. You've got to feed on me, Jesus said. Feed on this word, feed on Christ. Fill your mind with it. Praying always, verse 18, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, Paul writes, that utterance may be given to me, that I might open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. He was in chains, but he wrote this letter, and he had faith and he had courage to the end, So we must learn to put our total trust in God and use this sword of the Spirit so we can honor God in that way. Brethren, let's turn out of 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, if you would, at this point. I'm trying to find this here. 
And I think most of you know this scripture back in verse uh, 13, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. Paul has been talking about false ministers, and he says, Sir, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. He looks so good on the surface. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, his, Satan the devil's ministers, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. They say you don't have any works. Well, they do have works, and they'll be judged by those works, because they have not preached the truth. Another thing I want to mention to you is back in Hebrews 12, brethren, and I've mentioned this before, but I've hinted at it here, and I I want to not leave this out, even though we're hurrying here. I'll mention it. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks how God rebukes and chastens every son he loves and how we've got to be willing to be go through that chastening without bitterness. And it says in verse 14... Pursue peace with all men and holiness. Brethren, pursue holiness. Go all out to be close to God, without which no one will see the Lord, looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God and any root of bitterness. A root of bitterness, an attitude, I can't stand this. I hate God, I hate this minister, I hate this church, I hate this person, whatever it is. Satan will get in there. If you let your mind open itself up, he can put something in there. And as Mr. Armstrong said, a root of bitterness is like a heroin addict. Once they're hooked on it, it's very, very hard to give up, very hard to get rid of. Don't ever let yourself get that bitter, hooked on something. It will kill you, perhaps physically, through bitterness and bring on physical sickness and will kill you spiritually and keep you out of the kingdom. Don't ever be hooked on a root of bitterness springing up, causing trouble, and thereby many become defiled. That root of bitterness, when someone gets bitter in the church, they feel an obligation to spread it around, spread it around, you know, whatever it is. Well, Mr. League wasn't fair to me. He didn't treat me right. You know, Mr. Scott Winnell, he got too strict with this little point. They're all mad at him. Or Mr. Meredith, he preaches these strong sermons. He makes me mad. <laughs> you know, whatever it is. So you better get understand it. Satan could put these thoughts in your mind, not just toward us, but one another. Or the church in general. Or God let my son die. I'm mad at God. Well, God lets all kinds of people die. Mr. Ames was mentioning the Holocaust. Think about what's just ahead of us. Hundreds of millions of people are going to die. Remember, God talks about the resurrection from the dead. That is the hope of the Christian. That is the hope of the Christian. And we've got to understand that and see the big picture in all these things that are going to happen. Now, back in 1 Peter 5, brethren, 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's turn back there, if you would. And uh, I want to begin in verse 5. He talks about the ministers loving and being humbly servant leaders. And in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive one to another 
and be clothed with humility. As I've said, that's not easy to do. And I fail that test. I'm not clothed with humility 24 hours a day. I have human nature and you have human nature. We all have human nature. We need to pray for one another, forgive one another. But we're to try to be sincerely, ask God to help us, to guide our minds, to guide our hearts, to be his servants and to serve one another. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's the whole key. And again, I've seen that for 62 years, as I've said. Please understand it. I've seen it happen over and over. When people get the big head, when people get self-will, they get this attitude, I'm going to do what I want to do and no one's going to stop it, or I'm in charge here or else, or whatever it is. They can get in trouble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. He may exalt you in due time. God will take care of it in due time, if you're right, and if it's what you ought to have. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, be very alert, brethren, because your adversary, here he is, Satan the devil is your main adversary. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you've ever seen some of these movies about a roaring lion, they are powerful beasts. They could tear right through walls sometimes, flimsy flimsy walls or doors or any number of things to get at people. Resist him steadfast in the faith. You've got to resist Satan with all of your being. Resist him, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who has called us into as it ought to be his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. I like to, as I have pointed that out, it's not immediate. It's not pretty. He lets you go through trials and tests on the way after you have suffered a while. Perfect you, establish you, and strengthen and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So God lets you go through these trials, but you've got to realize you're in a battle. You have an adversary, and you've got to fight because you're fighting for your very life. And think about how Satan is out there trying to get you in a wrong attitude. He's trying to keep you from fasting, as Dr. Scott said. He'll try to block you when you're first coming in the truth by distracting you. Something will happen to get your attention somewhere else. He'll do anything he can. He may let someone die or he may let you lose your job if he sees that's the way to discourage you or make you mad at God. He'll do anything he can. You've got to understand that and know that God is real and he will take care of you if you do your part. Turn now in closing back to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 37. Mark the blameless man, a man who's really a right man, a man right with God. And observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. Yes, they're not going to be blessed. Don't take the easy route. It may be seem better at first, because the power and the glory of this coming Hitler, this beast, and the power and glory of this coming false prophet, and all the huge crowds shrieking at him as though he were God, that's going to seem so wonderful for a short time. Where does he end up? 
in the lake of fire, both of them. But the salvation of the Lord, verse 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. God is our strength. He will help us make it. We will be winners. And the Lord shall help them and he shall deliver them and he shall deliver them from the, from, he shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. He will save you from the devil and from yourself and from the world. He will save me. He will save them. Why? Because they trust in him. Over and over in the Psalms, we read verses like this from the mind of God because they put their trust in God.